Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Health by Heather Hirsch. We have an incredible jam-packed episode today. I was able to interview not one, but four different guests. And we're talking all about women and incarceration. Particularly, we're doing the second in our series of the Black Lives Matter. And we're looking at incarceration and how they affect minority communities, particularly here where I live in Boston, Massachusetts. But I know that many of the things that are my guests are going to say are going to apply possibly to your community or perhaps cities where you live close to as well. I really, really, really want to enlighten you with this episode. It is a lengthy one, so grab your walking shoes and take it on the road. I have so many guests in this episode who are going to enlighten and inspire you. I want to also highlight that if you are looking at this or listening to this episode on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, there's several links below where you can go to to help support some of the programs that my guests are going to talk about. Not only did I get to interview my esteemed colleague at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, who is an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School and teaches a class on incarceration at the Harvard Public School of Health, but also three phenomenal women who work for Families for Justice's Healing here in Boston, Massachusetts, and they are just going to blow you away with so much knowledge. In fact, you'll hear me learn things on the fly as I interviewed them as well. This is a really, really great topic and one that's really, really important for us to listen to and hear this message today. So sit in, tune in, and go ahead and browse through and click through any of those links below. It's really going to help out. Thanks. Hi, and welcome to Health by Heather Hirsch a podcast dedicated to uncovering many of the women's health issues many of us are wondering about, but few of us are talking about. My mission is to expose the current gaps in knowledge and care on all things women's health. Enjoy. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to Health by Heather Hirsch. From the bottom of my heart, I absolutely appreciate it. Today's episode is sponsored by a favorite product of mine, UberLube. I've been recommending this to my patients for years. What I love about UberLube is that they use a silicon base and allergies then are extremely rare. It has no added ingredients like scents, flavors, or spermicides, which are often the very same ingredients that cause irritations or reactions. It's also free of parabens, preservatives, and petrochemicals. And honestly, what I love the most is the chic glass bottle that it comes in and this nice little pump that allows you to get the perfect amount every time, plus no sticky residue. It's latex compatible and fun fact, it can be used underwater. So if you go to uberlube.com, that's U-B-E-R-L-U-B-E.com and use the code podcast, you will get 10% off orders on their website. I know you won't be disappointed. Hi, everyone. So today we have a really special episode. In fact, this is the first episode I've ever done on the podcast where I have not one guest, not two, but four guests today. And we have a really special episode today. We're going to be talking about uh, women's health and particularly thinking about uh, women in incarceration, after incarceration, and really the power of community to impact some of the changes uh, as we sort of learn 
learn about some of the issues that that are arising from having this this societal uh, issue. So today we're going to hear from so many different sides of this and I'm really, really excited. Uh, my guests today are all from Boston where I live and it's just going to be such a great episode and everyone's going to have so much knowledge to share. I wanted to start off with introducing my colleague in the Division of Women's Health at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and Assistant Professor at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Monique Jimenez. And I want to have you tell and sort of teach our listeners about the overview and scope of problem, starting with women in incarceration. Absolutely. So thank you so much for having me, Heather. Um, we have approximately 2.3 million people who are involved within the legal punishment system in the United States. And that includes involvement in um, whether they're incarcerated in prisons, jails, or detention facilities. As far as women are concerned, there's over 200,000 women who are incarcerated in the United States. And about half of those women are in uh, U.S. jails. And what's really important for us to also frame is that about half of those are being held prior to having been sentenced for any crime at all. So as per the Constitution of the United States, a debtor's prison is actually contrary to the, the foundational concepts of our initial amendments. However, that's essentially what we run in this country, is a debtor's prison. And so we have a large proportion of women in the United States who are incarcerated because they cannot make bail. How is that even fair? It's not fair. <laughs> I think that's a really important thing for the general listener to know because we are really brought up with this myth of uh, our justice system and a myth that the system is equal and fair. But what we've seen is that the legal system in the United States has been used as essentially a bargaining chip for political drives. And so different politicians have made changes um, to the way that we incarcerate individuals and particularly communities of color and also the laws that have been passed to keep people detained, even if they have not been sentenced with any crimes, in addition to how people are prosecuted. So some of this is, has been coming to light over the past decade, um, but there are a lot of places across the entry into the legal system where we have some very stark inequities and it becomes a, a monetary issue. There's a lot of money to be made within the carceral system. And so the cash bail system, which has been um, slowly adopted across the country, is what allows for people to be held if they cannot make their bail. Now, this cash-based bail, I might beg to guess this might be harder for women to meet than men. Is there any evidence to suggest so? Absolutely. So there's a great deal of work um, by some primarily journalist-driven advocacy groups, one of which is the Prison Policy Initiative. And they've done a lot of work to show that people who are impacted the most by cash bail systems are those groups of individuals in this country living 
within multiple, uh, multiple spaces of imposed vulnerability. And it's, I like to say imposed vulnerability because it's really important to highlight the structural factors of our country that have imposed this type of vulnerability among particular groups in this country. And so who is hardest hit by that? Populations of color, women, and women of color. Wow. And tell me a little bit about for women who are incarcerated, what do we know about prevalence of chronic diseases? This is really important and in fact has not, I think, received as much of the attention as it should. More of the attention with respect to health and incarceration has focused on chron uh, infectious disease. And that makes sense because right. of the living conditions, uh, carceral systems are a breeding ground for infectious disease. But we do also know that there are big inequities with respect to chronic disease. So we see uh, increased rates of all-cause cancer, increased rates of stroke, kidney-related conditions, in addition to cardiac uh, conditions as well. And these do vary, of course, by age. And one of the things that is important to also realize, when we think about chronic conditions, we're often thinking about cancer and cardiovascular disease. But one of the fundamental things that is really impacting all individuals within the carceral system, but in particular women, is a very high prevalence of trauma. And so we also know that trauma impacts a person's risk um, for chronic disease later in life as well. Exactly. I was thinking as you were talking about chronic diseases, as well as the prevalence of mental health conditions, anxiety and depression, and PTSD in particular, and how that may play a role after uh, someone's released. It's very true. We also know that there's a high prevalence of substance use disorder among women who are incarcerated. And one of the tragedies, I think, of this as well is that our system, rather than providing care to women who maybe have substance use disorders as a way of coping, very traumatic experiences, um, instead, we use our carceral system as the primary mental health care provider in the country. And I can imagine how these can re-victimize people later on and, and, and continue that cycle. Absolutely. What do we know about different prevalences of chronic diseases in incarcerated women uh, between races? It's an interesting picture because we know that the pathways to incarceration are different between women of color and white women. And so very much what we see is that women of color are incarcerated at younger ages and also incarcerated when they may be healthier than their white counterparts. It's essentially harder for a white woman to be incarcerated. Their, their path is going to be far more severe than that of a woman of color. And so in some senses, we do see better health outcomes among women of color than their white counterparts that are there may be incarcerated with, but a lot of that has to do with the pathway to prison. We incarcerate women of color when they are young and healthy because the system has been set up to uh, disproportionately against them, correct. Wow, wow, so eye-opening. 
we were talking before we started recording about talking about reproductive health. As, as you just mentioned, um, if, if women of color are incarcerated at younger ages and they're healthier, what do we know about reproductive health, including either contraception or, or pregnancy outcomes in this time? So Heather, that is such an important question. And one of the things that is very frustrating as an epidemiologist working in this space is that the data hasn't been collected. And so as far as pregnancy outcomes, there is a pivotal study called the Pregnancy in Prison Study. And it's the first of its kind to look at pregnancy outcomes among women who are incarcerated, including women and girls. And the PI of that study, Carolyn Suffren, has a really poignant statement that she uses. If you don't count, you're not counted. And the, the reproductive health of women has essentially been ignored by the Justice Department and the Bureau of Justice Statistics, which is doing most of the larger scale health assessment of incarcerated populations. And what we're seeing um, with that, it's our first glimpse into understanding how are, for example, pregnant women what type of prenatal care do they receive? What type of family planning options are they given? And I'll give you one, one example for this. So there are carceral systems in the US that will provide access to pregnancy termination. However, in many places, the woman is responsible for paying for that care. So it's sort of, it's a fake access, if you will. What a lot of people also don't understand is that in many carceral systems in the US, people are required to pay a copay to access medical care. And so what that means when, if you're in prison and you are able to have access, an opportunity to work, people make about pennies on the dollar, sometimes 12 cents an hour. And so the comparison of what a copay, a $5 copay might be in the free world compared to a three or five dollar copay for somebody who's incarcerated is a huge level of inflation. And so access to that care becomes highly limited. So we don't necessarily have a standardized system of access, let's say for women who um, might be pregnant in prenatal care or for other types of issues. We also know that the incarcerated population is getting older. And part of that is because of very long sentences due to mandatory sentencing laws in addition to mandatory minimums. And so we see that the population is aging, but in addition, we've seen an increase in arrests among older individuals. And so there's a whole group of women who are in their 40s, later 50s, and their health needs as they go through that menopausal transition that you're so familiar with and that your work is focused on are essentially not addressed and treated as if they're not a medical issue at all. So this all begs the obvious question of what is a better system? I want to introduce, we have some special guests with us here today. So uh, from the Programs and Families for Justice is Healing, we have Ayana Romilda and as the administration um, for the National Council for Incarceration, uh, incarceration formerly incarcerated women and girls, um, Sashi here with us today. And so I'm so glad to have 
you three with us today so that we can think about in terms of our communities why this system is failing our women. So, well, that's a pretty big question. I'd love to have each one of you introduce yourself and tell uh, our listeners a little bit about why you're passionate about what you do, what got you involved in caring for incarcerated and formerly incarcerated women, and start to help us answer this bigger question of how will we replace the system to one that works? Um, I guess I can go first. So my name is Ayana, and I'm part of Families for Justice at Healing. Um, and I don't know, I just wanted to bring up something too, just Monique, like hearing you talk about inequity after inequity, injustice after injustice, and just everything that, you know, um, is happening um, and is a direct target to black women and women of color. And it just made me think of like, how, like how, how, do they, how are they able to get away with all of that, you know? And I think it really has a lot to do with the way that they see us as less than, you know? And again, like they're able to justify that, that perception of us as less than because, you know, they created a system to like, just say like, you know, they're criminal. And like that, that goes far back, you know, thinking of the 13th Amendment, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but just like, you know, the 13th Amendment abolished slavery except for um, people who are convicted of a crime. And so just thinking about the system, how, they, mm. how did we get here? Like, that's really how, that's how we got here. It's an extension of slavery, and that's how they're able to get away with injustice after injustice and, like, create, like, inflicting so much violence on our people and our families. And, you know, all of us on the call are directly harmed by the system and, you know, are still, like, trying to live and heal from that today. And so like that, that's really what brings me to this work, you know, like having a parent that was incarcerated and just like, I don't know, just growing up and seeing, you know, that's, I was born into that. Like I, I met my parent in prison, you know, and then just growing up, getting to know my parent um, within that system and being able to like, I don't know, just teach myself and learn from my father and then also learn from, you know, other leaders in our community, like what different could look like. And it's been a process, it's been a journey, but we really stand tall behind, you know, the formerly incarcerated women and incarcerated women who guide, move, and like our leadership and like the life of this organization. And we unapologetically stand on ending the incarceration of women and girls because we understand like the system and that we deserve better, our communities deserve better, and we've only been awarded, I mean, offered one thing, you know? Yeah. And it's such a, it's, it's, it's actually, I was thinking this morning as we were, as I was getting ready to record that we're recording on, you know, June 19th, which happens to be a pretty historic day. And here we are, you know, I think that was 1868. I could be wrong, right? Here we are hundreds of years later where we still see some of these same pervasive systemic patterns. And so it is wonderful to hear your voices on some of the ways that it's been failing your communities and failing your families and how important of an impact y'all are making. Romelda, introduce yourself to us and tell us uh, what you find important about this work and you know, your thoughts on how the system is failing your community, what might be a better option? 
Um, yeah. Um, just real, just real quick. The Juneteenth was eighteen sixty five, and thank you for highlighting that. Um, I'm a formerly incarcerated woman here from Boston, Massachusetts. My incarceration started as a child. I was um, my first incarceration. I was fourteen. Um, I am um, a mother of two. My first child, I was 18. Um, being a teen mom, I was um, also com committed to Department of Youth Services and um, to the age of 18, then recommitted to 21 at the age of 16. Wow. But um, so, as you can imagine, when I had my oldest, I was um, property of Department of Youth Services, so I was deemed to them. And um, when I had my daughter, I was actually changed to bed with case managers outside. You know, and for me, um, even though I still graduated um, high school on time, high honors and things like that, like I still had another side to me, you know. I was never a bad kid, I never a bad person. I was just a product of my, my environment and just was whatever, what worked with and deal with whatever coins I was given in life, you know, and which wasn't much. So um, lack of education, lack of knowledge, things like that lack of guidance, I would say, you know, and um, just people always judging and putting us down. But I now am that change that I wanted to see back then. Like I am now a mentor for the young people in my community. I am a mom, but I'm also a mentor to my children. So I teach them based off of my experience. I always say we can't be adults because we got to understand like everyone needs someone to be there for them. And I'm that person today. And um, for me, for my community, is reimagining my community and giving back to the young people what we didn't have. And um, who else but us, because we come from those communities, we know what we wanted. You know, again, um, I was in and out of incarceration, 18 months here, two months there, two and a half years here, three years there, you know what I mean? So I was in and out of incarceration and it didn't work, you know? So it's time for us to start listening to people that can tell you what did work for them. Like I changed my life. I can't, I can thank people for supporting me along the way and leaders and things like that who held my hand and again, supported me, but I changed my life because I know what I needed. And I had to be that example for my daughters because for me in the household that I come from, I needed to break that cycle. So That's let's talk about the cycle for just one second. I know for a lot of people that might be a, a newer concept. So for both of you, how did you how did you feel that maybe your family's uh, history of incarceration or your family's trauma from that has affected you? I know you touched on it a little bit, but how do you how do you see that, or how do you see that in your communities? It's generational trauma. It's generational harm. You know, and if they didn't help my dad, how they didn't help me, I was just if I didn't stop, if I didn't help myself, I was going to project it onto my children, and so on and so forth. But it's all about helping that person. I could speak for myself. When my family went away, it was a large number of them at the same time. So we were left without leaders. We were left without like our protectors. You know, my father's my biggest protector, my king, my world. I was left without that. Um, we had that phone calls, we had that letters, but it's nothing like that person physically actually being there. And the crimes that they committed weren't that, to me, it wasn't that big of a deal for you to take, strip them away from their family and so much. And it's like, no one ever stepped in and said, what is it that you actually need for us to help you and grow? I come from a family that comes from, we have to understand too, cultural background, cultural differences. I come from a family, we come from, a, um, from islands in Cape Verde where many of these stuff are not considered crimes. 
or charges. Mm -hmm. And you got to remember that we come from that. And um, also we come from a place where prison isn't always shoved in your face. It actually takes a lot for you to even be sentenced to prison. So people don't understand that part. And we have to understand people's cultural differences and stuff like that. So Monique talked a little bit about minimum sentences um, and uh, having uh, incarceration, just people having long sentences. And that is interesting and, and kind of coming back in what you're saying and sort of that cycle of someone is gone for so long and you have such a loss of that impact of that family member. Imagine how that's going to compound even just the weeks in a young child's life. So you mentioned that there was help and there was support. So I'm wondering what and any of you can can jump in, but what was that support? What was what you needed that helped you and, and, and you know, potentially other members that you support? My support system, I'm going to be honest with you, I was my biggest support system. And when I realized how, um, and learned how to actually advocate for myself, that's when real change became, um, started to happen. My support system were back then were like um, my basketball coach, guidance counselor, but they, again, they had limited resources and they can only do so much. And then they also had their families, they, they had to go home to and take care after three o'clock PM. So again, it takes a village. So the people after school hours, we need to start create a community where we're a village that is taking care of our youth and our young people and our elderly, just people in general. Uh, Sashi James, I'd love to introduce you as well and have you sort of weigh in on some of the things we've been talking about. Why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your journey and your commitment to this field? So my name is Janisha James and I go by Sashi and I'm the admin for the National Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls, which is also, you know, Families for Justice as Healing, Deeply Connected. <laughs> This is Katori. Um, Hi, Katori. She's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so what brought me to this journey is that I'm also a daughter of incarcerated parents. Um, my dad was incarcerated when I was six months. So that long gap, that's something that still lives with me because I've, I didn't really get to have a childhood with my dad as everybody else did um, until I was about 12 years old. Um, so the system did still 12 years of, you know, my life and my dad's life um, because of uh, small crimes. So, and then uh, leading on to further life, then my mom was also incarcerated for a period of time. And she was also incarcerated uh, after she gave birth to my little brother. So he was six months at the time. Um, and then she was sent to a federal prison in Connecticut. Um, and so like uh, coming into this journey of organizing and working with Ayana and Ramilda and just the community and getting deeply involved, we really realized like, you know, we are living in generational trauma, right? And so like when we talk about, you know, incarceration or we talk about missing dads or missing parents in my life in our community, that's normal. And so, you know, we, Ayana, Ro, like we've came together as a mother and as daughters to say like, hey, it's not normal and we want our parents and we want our dads, we want our mothers, you know, they don't belong in prison. Yes, because our community lacks resources, you know, um, that doesn't mean that they should be punished for a, for a long period of time or any time period, because um, the problem is that the system doesn't see um, the family and the people that are standing behind that one person that they're punishing. 
they only see the person and sometimes they don't even see the person they just see the piece of paper that they're reading and so that's why it's really important that we really advocate and connect deeply with our community because our community also has became so um used to the system that uh, sometimes that we just like, we just kind of like go get through the day. And so we really, like you made a comment um, earlier that that was like, you know, what does different look like kind of, and like, what is it, another system? And I really appreciated that because a lot of people talk about reforming the system that we currently have. And, and we, don't, we don't think about reforming the system. We think about dismantling the system and creating a system that works for everybody. So that's the reason why um, I'm, I've chosen this journey. Um, and also, you know, when we talk about, you know, we always, right now we're deeply involved with opposing a new women's prison um, that houses 200 women. Um, but we have really a unique uh, low number of women incarcerated in Massachusetts. So we have a unique to end incarceration of women and girls. So when you talk about building a new prison, you're pretty much uh, putting a stamp on incarcerating our future generation. And um, and when you say you're, uh, you're putting a stamp on incarcerating our future generation, I can't help but think about my daughter. And my daughter's not going in prison, you know, and um, neither is Rose's daughters. So um, that's why it's really important for, for, for me. Thank you. So, Monique, I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you what you know about this new prison that uh, Sashi was just talking about. And I know you mentioned that this is an area where some folks are making money off of incarceration. So what do we know? What do you know about that? Can you expand that a little bit further? So as far as um, prisons are a really profitable system, and so very often you'll hear a rebuttal to that and will people will often say well prisons cost communities and states more than they make but that's when we only look at one particular sliver so it's a very um it's a it's a very skewed view of the problem prisons they bring in revenue for even and and local jails bring in revenue for their local city they bring in revenue for the state, and it depends on a state prison versus a federal prison, but also uh, beds can be contracted out to Homeland Security, they can be contracted out to ICE, and each of those facilities then are paid for those people who are incarcerated. There are really um, very large contract bidding wars that go on to provide services to prisons. And so one key example of this that I'd like to highlight which has a very detrimental impact on the incarcerated persons and their families are the commissaries and also communication with family. So for, and I'll use the example of communications with family. So um, we know that across the United States, the amount that a person has to pay to engage in a 15 minute call with their families are exorbitantly high, sometimes $15 a minute. And so what happens there is that that cost is burdened by the family, right? The cost is essentially paid by the communities that are represented within the carceral settings. But what happens to the prison system is they receive a, a kickback from every call that's made. And so they're benefiting from this incredible layer of 
a very explicit decision to not just subjugate, but also to tear families apart. And the other piece um, with respect to the commissary, the price of uh, the commissary is essentially, some people might think of it as like a, a, a place where people can buy food and certain items. And the cost of those are extremely high compared to what they would be on the free world. And prisons receive a kickback for that as well. Who does, who pays the cost of that? The families do. The families pay the cost to put money on somebody's books so that they can buy food to supplement the very often inadequate and poor nutrition that is provided by carceral settings, um, to buy extra soap, to buy hygiene, uh, personal hygiene products. So tampons and pads are not, they're not free. It, it varies. And in many places, you may get like a couple per month in some places, but not enough to get you through. Um, and, and the group can speak to that. Yeah, it depends on the facility that you're in. But in most DOC facilities, they will, um, state facilities and stuff like that, they will they would give them to you. But um, again, they're poor quality. It's not, um, I would, I could say this, um, d- depending on the facility and the brand, I've had to double up where you would have to wear two pads at a time and make it work that way. And then most times where you have so many women, if the place is crowded, we can't order them. The prison has to order them. And there's been time, you know, you just have to wait on them. And if it's not, what you have to do is, you know, wrap up toilet paper. And yes, there's been times where I've had to do that due to lack of um, supplies. I know I just interrupted you, Monique, but I mean, that, I mean, sorry for my ignorance. I mean, that just blows me away, especially when we think about when immediately I think about patients who have heavier menses, fibroids, endometriosis. I mean, the list goes on and on. and, And those things are not basic rights that just, that just makes me incredibly mad. That's crazy to mind, think. If you don't mind if I just add something, in addition to like basic rights, it's also about like humanity. Like you're also dealing with women that have dealt with trauma, you know, sexual trauma, just mental trauma, and just a lot of like life trauma. And so a lot of stories that we hear is that like women um, have to ask guards, like the men for pads and tampons, and that's humiliating. And Or uh, one of the stories that always have lived with me um, was, you know, the what women have learned inside was to learn how to roll a pad up and use substitute it as a tampon and like that's like you know like what what how how have we gotten here to the point where you can't even give a woman a basic need as a tampon or a pad for something that's like you know we know this comes this is natural it's part of life so i just wanted to all uplift that too because you sorry absolutely thing that oh sorry heather that i would just like to add is that this the, the system being built in a way to systematically dehumanize people also places opportunities for a use of punishment for, for people who are just trying to meet basic needs. And so we see, we hear these stories very often where just trying to meet basic needs also puts people at risk of being put into solitary confinement. And it puts them at risk of violence, um, whether it be from the staff or from other people who they are incarcerated with. 
And so it's really important that we are that we frame this as understanding, as, as Ayana had mentioned before, we take a group that is already highly marginalized and now we're further providing more oppression and we're further re-traumatizing and we're further disabling their ability, a person's ability to be able to thrive right? We talk a lot about resilience. Resilience is a really catchy word right now. But resilience is really a place of privilege. You have to have enough left to be able to be resilient. And, and so that's one of the reasons why I, I struggle with that word resilience, because it's, it's very challenging. Because when you have lived within these spaces for generations, and, and multiple oppressions throughout your own life, it's, there is, do not get me wrong, there's incredible strength, incredible resilience, and incredible community. But we also, I think, when you talk about what's a new system look like, a new system dismantling this rotten and broken foundation focuses on that. Uh, tell us uh, more about what are the plans in Massachusetts to create another women's prison and how much farther does this get us from the goal of dismantling the system? Um, yeah, so um, here in Massachusetts, they're planning to build, as Sashi had mentioned earlier, a $50 million new women's prison. And that's in line with um, just like their values in the state, like we're seeing again and again, we're like knee deep in a people's budgeting process where formerly incarcerated women are going through line item by line item in the state budget, where is money going? And again, like we're seeing like the state is increasing funding towards incarceration, increasing funding towards specifically the Department of Corrections, which we see and know the truth of is a, a, a agency that inflicts so much violence onto our loved ones. Um, there's nothing about it that corrects our, corrects people and our people don't need corrections, you know? Our people need dignified housing, our people need employment, our people need access to educational opportunities, our people need parks and nice neighborhoods. You know, we, we ran like a whole listening tour um, that basically was led by formerly incarcerated women and women with incarcerated loved ones. And um, they were able to bring to the forefront their solutions and their demands. And so it's hard because we're doing all of this organizing that's really like just very grassroots and like people led and we're seeing like you know we're in tune with the community like the pulse and like we know like what people want and just to see like time and time again that the state is putting out like it's just moving forward and ignoring that and just like you know going moving forward in their own interests like you said like the system profits off of us it feels like we're moving further but also like we're capturing so much momentum right now and so many people are like no like we're in, we're in opposition of that. The new regional lockup bill that they're trying to build in Boston, we had organized a standout a couple of weeks ago, like informing our community that they're trying to build a new jail here. Um, and knowing that Roxbury, Dorchester, Mattapan are the most incarcerated neighborhoods in the entire state. Us saying, like declaring like no new jails, like we really need that. We need investing in our communities and we know what that looks like. A lot of people were gravitated towards that and you know we're saying things that you know we talk about in our kitchens in our living rooms you know what i mean but we're trying to bring those conversations to the forefront to city hall to the state house 
to the governor's house, like, you know, like, release our women, release our mothers. Parental incarceration is always harmful and things like that. So this begs the question of why can't we take that $50 million budget instead of building a prison, build programs for education, housings, parks, etc. Why can't we do that? What are the stumbling blocks? I think for me, what I would say, it's more, I would, you know, legislators and where they put in the money into and funding, we can't do it if we don't have the funding. You know, we do have people from our communities that have the answers. We have a woman that's um, part of our organization, Stacy Borden, who came home and, you know, she, I believe she did five years, but after coming home, you know, she started her program, New Beginnings, and now has a program, Kimya's House, which is for, for me, which is for women who are coming home from incarceration. And nothing about us without us. This is some a formerly incarcerated woman who changed her life around, who did a great job of changing her life around, and is going to go back and help women that she left behind do the same. And she's just someone that they can relate to and someone that they can, you know, Stacy, even for me, um, Stacy made the impossible possible for so many years. I want a group home. I want a youth home. And for so many years, people told me that I couldn't do that because I'm a formerly incarcerated woman, because I am on a target for BPD, gang unit, and things like that. And Stacy just shut those hundreds of haters up. Stacy just shut them up. You know what I mean? Because she showed me that it's possible. It can be done. And now I'm in that route, and I'm taking those steps. So we can make it happen. We just have to give the right people the chance and opportunity. So it sounds like there's amongst the minority community, generational trauma, and among legislators and those who make the rules, generational benefit. Heather, I wonder if I could also just interject that very often the majority white population feels that this is a problem of populations of color. This is not their problem. And I think it's really important for the majority population to recognize that this is their problem because the health of everyone impacts everyone. And when we have populations that are systematically oppressed, we are missing our next Einstein. We are missing our next discoveries to cure cancer, to eliminate cardiovascular disease, to make incredible changes in, in peace and in government and to change our entire our entire country and our world. We are systematically squashing those, those voices. And so this impacts everyone. And I think that's important for those who may not have the direct connection that we do to remember. They're cheating themselves. I also see it as I'm listening to y'all talk, dismantling the system and rebuilding something that makes sense, not only helps each individual thrive and have a successful family and successful life, but also it makes our community safer and our healthcare overall actually, actually much better. Uh, as, as we just talked about longer sentences, chronic diseases, it, how trauma affects chronic diseases, and then how that's generational. I hope that for all of those listeners who this may be new to you, this is starting to make some sense. You're starting to see these patterns and how damaging 
and how pervasive and deeply rooted they are and how much work we have. And we have three young women here who are just, I'm so amazed by all the things you've been able to do and accomplish and advocate for your communities, for your children and for your families and for your parents. And I, I really just feel so honored to be able to have you on and hear your voice because I can't imagine coming from where you guys have come from. And Monique, thank you so much for your, all that you're doing, your epidemiology hat, your perspectives. You also now have a class. Is that, is that right? Do you, can you tell us a little bit about the class that you're teaching here at Harvard Medical School and educating hopefully our young physicians and epidemiologists who can step in with everyone on the front lines to really finally make a difference? Sure. So I am teaching the first ever class at Harvard School of Public Health on mass incarceration and health. Uh, I think it's also very telling that we're a top tier institution of public health and we have never had a class dedicated to this topic. And the class was essentially brought by someone who's been impacted by incarceration themselves and a woman of color. So that just further highlights the importance of us being at the table to be able to make those changes. Uh, And I was very honored to have also Ayana come and speak in my class. So this class covers a wide range of topics. What the scope, what the deep history of incarceration is rooted in slavery within the country and the impact that it has on various different domains of chronic disease. But one of the key features of the class that I'm particularly proud of is that we have community members come and give their perspectives. And so that is quite novel, actually, in public health. So my goal has been consistently to decolonize science. How do we systematically ensure that we question and that we think about conducting science that benefits communities, but is not being directed by oppression and a a hierarchical framework. And so we bring those community voices in so that our students learn directly from their experiences so that we can challenge our public health community to ask the questions that matter and not the questions that we think are important from our ivory towers. Yeah. Ayana, that's so exciting. How was that experience to be able to bring your voice to, you know, Harvard School of Public Health? How, how was that experience? Um, it was really cool. One, um, getting to know Monique first. Um, and I went with um, our, our um, organization partner, Kim. Um, she helped us so much with our listening to our work. She's fabulous. She's really like a public health expert. Um, And she's helped us um, draft, you know, the report that we're um, getting ready to publish out into our communities. Um, And it was a cool experience just seeing how many people were like, you know, really interested in like what we were saying. Um, And and also hearing the presentations before. I think Monique, it sounds like has like a really beautiful curriculum and like they're really like branching out even international. How does the prison system work in other countries as well? And you know, just the different layers. Like it's so like you could do a whole like degree on incarceration, which you wouldn't want to do, but just saying in general, like how 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 intricate the system is and it impacts every part of our life. 
housing, it impacts, um, you know, substance use, it, it impacts families, you know, it, it, it connects so deeply and it's integrated with the government um, and policing. So it's just like very, very, um, I don't know, it's, it's complex. That's why they call it the prison industrial complex. And so it's so important, I think, you know, um, for us to create, um, to, to build allies, and that's what we're doing at Families for Justice That's Healing. We're not just staying in like one room, you know, we're building allies with public health experts, we're building allies with just people who like all walks of life because we know like the benefits of that and like everybody has a role to play. So it was really cool. Wow. You know, as I'm thinking about this, it's just so incredible as a physician, how little we learn about this system, which is such a huge area of our population. When trying to make a difference like this, I always think about three pillars. I think we touched a lot upon them. It's sort of one that like grassroots organization or or making change from within, from the community for which it matters. And then there's education, which is one thing this podcast is trying to do and Monique is doing and y'all are doing too. And then there's just changing those, there's just those deep-rooted societal myths, which we talked about in the beginning, which so many of them were, you know, things that I I myself didn't even know. So I really can't thank you guys enough for giving up your time today to shed some light on this and bringing your perspectives and your voices to the table. I, I'm, I'm so grateful. I'd love to just sort of um, have each of you guys say where people can contact you if they want to uh, further talk with you or interview you, where can people find you? And I'll also link, if you guys have websites, I'll link those down below. Um, well, you could contact Sashi. Well, you can see me, Sashi, and Roll every day. Um, we have like a Get Free 15 on a, a live Facebook Live. Um, you can go to our page, Families for Justice That's Healing, if you want to just hear more about like just our week of action and updates and anything that's going on that's pressing um, in our uh, in our world. We have so many programs at Families for Justice That's Healing. If you're an ally and you want to um, get involved, we have a build up um, People's Not Prisons Coalition that we meet every Saturday from one to three. Um, and if you um, are a formerly incarcerated woman or a woman with incarcerated loved one, we have groups. Um, throughout the week, and we have a participatory defense um, program as well, where we um, help families with their cases. Wow. Also, Sashi does the National Council too, and I don't know if you want to talk about that as well. Uh, you can con you can uh, check us out. Our website is nationalcouncil.us, and um, we all have our staff on the website. You can look up call me, whatever you want, I'm always available. I also just wanted to thank you for having us on here um, to really talk about the importance and help help us carry the message of ending incarceration of women and girls because that's our ending vision and we're really uh, kind of bird's eye on um, ending incarceration of women and girls because women don't belong in cages. Um, so thank you for uh, giving us the time to really encourage the community and your listeners to uh, you know, follow the leadership of Families for Justice Healing and join us rather um, to end incarceration. And um, yeah, so you can always check us out. A hashtag is free her or hashtag build people not prisons. You can always check us at people not prisons.org. Um, 
tinyurl.com forward slash MA Week of Action. Um, and our website is justiceishealing.org. Um, if you don't mind, I jump right in. I know we're about to uh, close up, but I just really wanted to also uplift the clemency work. We didn't really get to touch on that. Um, you know, clemency, uh, as we as we mentioned earlier, that we have one of the lowest amounts, uh, lowest numbers of women serving um, inside prison, which is a little bit over 400. So we do have a unique opportunity to end incarceration of women and girls. However, a lot of we have one of the highest numbers of women serving life. So clemency is a tool that the governor uh, has. It's a tool that exists that the governor can uh, actually grant women clemency as a sort of way of um, mercy, forgiveness, and um, bring them home. So if you're serving life, that's one of the only avenues that you have um, to actually come home and be reunited with your family um, and just come home and live a life outside of prison. Um, so we're, we have a clemency petition that's going on in Ayana and I, Families for Justice Healing, the National Council, we are deeply involved in really trying to provide um, any type of awareness to the women that are asking for clemency in each state. And uh, I know right now we're in Massachusetts, so we're really urging Governor Baker to really use his clemency power to grant the women that have been incarcerated for 10 years and longer. We have elderly women inside prison. We have sick women inside of prison. And these are the women that need to come home right now. So like when you think about prison, I think it's important that we also don't vision me being in prison like a young healthy woman just sitting behind a cell because I did something wrong think of a grandmother sitting inside of a cage and that's just you know aging rapidly because of the poor conditions inside of a prison and so you know clemency is one of the tools that they can use to come home and we have a clemency petition and we encourage everybody to sign it that's the only way that we um, can really start to push um, and it's uh, tinyurl.com forward slash clemency works um, MA and um, please sign the petition and also you know just help us out. Thank you. I will uh, put all these links below so that people could email each of you individually as well as to sign the petition and I encourage all my listeners to please please do so. Monique, any last comments, uh, anything else you'd like to say as we wrap up? And again, thank you so much for, for, for sprinkling all your wisdom on us. Sure, I am just so um, pleased and privileged to have had the opportunity to come and share this space with all of these amazing women. And uh, thank you so much for bringing this topic to your listeners, because I think it's important for us to reach a base that may not always be thinking about it in their day-to-day -day lives. And so uh, anybody can feel free to contact me as well. I'm on Twitter, Dr. Monique Jimenez, and my email address is mjimenez, that's J-I-M-E-N-E-Z, 11 at Partners. And also we have very important work going on with respect to COVID in correctional facilities. And that work can be found at www.covidprisonproject.com. Wow, you guys are, I'm amazed with how much each of you are uh, with, with how much you are doing, I'm, when Ayana was telling us all the, the things in the groups and the Facebook events, it's just, I, kn I know how much that takes. It's, it's a lot of work and to be the face of a community is not easy. Um, it's definitely a fun and exciting, but it definitely is challenging. So I thank you guys all for, for all that you're doing. I thank you guys all for uh, 
giving us such a, um, you know, a, a sweeping overview, um, but also a really important one of some of the issues that we've talked about today. So thank you guys so much. Thank you to all my listeners for listening in. If you like this podcast, please share it with a friend. Please post it to your social media and, and have as many people listen in as possible. Here on Health by Heather Hirsch, we talk about all things women's health. And this is a topic I could not do on my own. So I thank my guest today from the bottom of my heart. Thank you guys so very much. Again, uh, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day or evening. Thank you, Bye. Heather.